0: Welcome, I'm Sirius Afshar, and this is the Wigos Informal Economy Podcast, Social Protection. monthly podcast we will discuss some of the most pressing issues related to the linkages between the informal economy and social protection including debates around workers health provision pension schemes for older workers as well as childcare systems and other social protection policies for informal workers in order to improve their livelihoods and in the first episode of the year we will discuss Numbers, Statistics are a powerful tool to shed light on the informal economy and to make informal workers visible in policy arenas. In order to help us understand better the linkages between social protection and statistics, the challenges, limitations and the most recent research on the field, we invite two special guests. Our first guest is François Carré. Françoise is the WIGO's statistics program director and she's also research director at the Center for Social Policy at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Françoise conducts research on the transformation and non-standard work in the United States and internationally. Also here with us is Francie Lund. Francie is WIGO's senior advisor. She's also a senior research associate at the School of Built Environment and Development Studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal in Durban, South Africa. Françoise and Francie, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you, Cyrus. Thank you.
0: So let's jump right to it. So first of all, I would like to start with you, Françoise, what is the importance of statistics for an informal economy, and why WIGo has a dedicated program for that?
2: Yes, Uh, changing the practice of official statistics has really been a key goal for WIGO, and for this, and that's why the the statistics program is one of its main programs. That's because up until at least 2000, very few countries measured and reported informal employment reliably. And the reason for posturing and pushing for the measurement and reporting of informal employment uh, by countries by official statistics is because it enables us to increase the visibility of informal employment and informal workers. It calls attention to basically the predominance of informal employment as a form of work in the greatest part of the world. And it sort of puts informal employment and informal workers forward as subjects of policy. They should be the subject of policy. It also supports advocacy activities and and, and the advocacy role of uh, member-based organizations of informal workers. So it's really been one of the key activities for WIGO for a long time. It needs to be
0: now. Data on, on informal employment is much harder to find than labor data for uh, the so-called formal employment. Uh, Francie, what are the main challenges to obtain data on informal employment? And and Françoise, feel free to jump in.
1: It's through the research that we've done with informal workers across different sectors. Typically, you collect data in a household, and there's an assumption that the person in the household, say the household head or what's known as the key household respondent, can speak for absent household members, many of whom are absent in order to work. And so, your household respondent may know what the absent worker earns. The worker is absent in order to do work. They know what the earnings are, or rather, they know the household member knows what gets sent in but it has no idea of what work-related benefits there might be through the work, if there are indeed any work-related benefits. So you've got two levels of absent information, no access to the worker, him or herself, but then also that the household respondent doesn't in fact know that information. A second point that's important for social protection is that as people move within the informal economy into different jobs or between formal and formal, the so-called labor churning, they may increase their social benefits, but more likely they'll lose even more than they had, especially in the move from formal to informal. And you can't get a sense in a one-off survey of that pattern of loss and gain as you exit from or enter between formality and informality. The The third example is in panel surveys where, say, you've got a chance, you go to the same household, say, every five years, and you've got a chance then of getting an historical pattern work of entry and exit from the informal economy. It simply takes too much time to ask about the small pieces of work that people do in and out, with the exiting and exiting. This might not be so important in Northern countries, But in countries, and I I suspect particularly in African countries where households are complex, often three-generational, lots of migration in and out, you're actually missing the possibility. It takes too much time to get the detail about each household member. And you certainly don't want to get only informal workers unless it's a dedicated survey. And then the final point I would make just in terms of the difficulties are that where you don't do a household survey and take, for example, is go to street vendors or market workers and built markets in urban settings, you may come across quite considerable fear and anxiety on behalf of the vendors themselves, who think that you might actually be probably a cop in disguise, or you might be the person who's controlling actually the, the, the chain of produce in the fruit market is, is him or herself quite a source of problem for vendors. One of the strengths of a whole range of WIGO research and statistics gathering is that we're working with the member-based organization. Mm.
2: In addition to all the challenges that occur in the field, uh, all all I would add is that up until very recently, countries haven't had an experience with designing national surveys that ask questions that are going to elicit something about the work arrangement that will indicate that the the work is informal. So first, it's just in the questions themselves that countries still uh, have to refine the questions. Some of them do, the, do it extremely well with this and others are still yeah. in the process of learning. The other one is that still we don't have all countries asking about place of work, which going forward will yep. be something that's actually required under international statistics standards for labor statistics. So that not knowing whether somebody works in the street, in a market, or at home is is very important for being able to identify informal workers and where they are and what kind of work they do. And finally, small enterprise surveys, even surveys that are dedicated to identifying small businesses and small enterprises, tend to miss the tiny enterprises of of one person working for themselves. Uh, They don't all miss them, but, but it's a challenge in some countries. So I guess the caveat I have about all of this is that there's a range of practices. Some countries have made a great deal of progress and others have made less, are not that far along in the process.
0: Hmm. Now, let's step back for a minute and talk about a more fundamental issue. One key aspect of measuring informal economy, size and composition, is to know what to count and what are we calling informal work. As you were talking about that, uh, Francoise, what are the definitions used by statisticians and what is the importance of access to social protection in this regard and and also if you could mention some of the statistical indicators of informal economy related to the access of social protection used to operationalize the concept and how can these be used to measure the barriers to access Social protection.
2: Mm-hmm. The social protection matters a great deal. So first, there is a conceptual definition, and then there is the way it's operationalized. So conceptually, it's actually a very broad definition that says that employment that is not covered, or is insufficiently covered by formal arrangements through work, is informal employment. What that means in practice is that in the case of wage employment, meaning when you have somebody who payrolls you in some way, you you do not have access to key social protection in your country through your work. For the workers that are not wage workers that are so-called self-employed, there are other ways to get at the status or registration of their one-person or multi-person enterprise if they are an employer. And because the employer, the enterprise is small or is not registered, they lose access to social protection as well. So that's sort of the conceptual definition. And what's important about that definition is to remember that it's not illegal, the production of illegal goods, and it's not underground activity it's stuff that's out in the open but the workers themselves are not connected through work, uh, through main dimensions of social protection. How it gets operationalized is important. And basically, as I said, for the um, workers that are payrolled by somebody in some way, they work for someone else, they have a, an employer, they do not have access to the key item of social protection in the country through work. If information about that is not available, then what gets looked at is de facto access to paid annual leave, which is the equivalent of some paid for days off, and or not access to so, if you miss either of these two, you're also considered informal. So, that's for the wage workers. And for the self employed, it happens through looking at whether the economic unit that they work for or that is themselves, if they're just working by themselves, it is that they're not registered under na- national legislation. And that, again, severs these individuals and these employers from ac- and their workers from access to some key aspect of social protection. So, social protection is both a consequence and it's a key
1: to thinking about informal
0: employment. Francie, do you want to add anything?
1: Just to add that the term social protection itself is a relatively new term, by which I mean sort of 20 years. Before that, it used to be social security. And that term social security was obviously driven by the idea of formal work being the dominant form of work. Social protection as a term has its merits, but it allows very many different kinds of programs to be in there so in most countries it would mean health social services pensions and grants but not education in some countries in the north it includes housing what do we do with a program very common in southern countries of the public works programs. Is that an economics program? Because it's there to try and promote an active market policy. Or is it actually a poverty program and a program of social protection? Because it's extremely focused on poor, vulnerable people who are at risk and trying to inject some kind of um, contact with the labor market in that family. So there's quite a lot of fuzziness now there. I don't mean now, there is a lot of fuzziness there. And it makes a great difference, especially when Northern, when typically, say, a more northern theorist, will make assumptions about household structure and social protection programs, which simply don't map out in in the South. And for instance, the survey terminology itself, in some countries, a maintenance grant for women, it can be, as in South Africa, it's the term used both for state provision, for maternity, and for work-related provision and survey designers don't even know that kind of thing.
2: in labor force statistics and for purposes of thinking about labor standards and employment and labor policies, the dimension of access to social protection is important when it is social protection that is access as a worker. I mean, there are lots of countries in the world that have universal schemes. But here, we're talking about characterizing the nature of the employment, the work arrangement as a potential subject for labor policy, labor standards and employment policy as well as social protection. And so, we're focusing on the aspects of what a person can access as a worker as opposed to what a person can
1: access as a citizen. I think that's a really important point that Francoise is making and particularly with the tendency under globalization of social benefits to be eroded on the whole through programs of austerity and also for the endorsement amongst some of the large international institutions of the idea that you should actually take away work-related social benefits altogether. And that would just be absolutely, frankly, disastrous, rather than the counter-tendency, which is to say, how do we extend social protection to informal workers and find ways of dealing with this very important problem Francoise was saying about the, the, the extent of self-employment. You can't default to an ILO position because there is no employer or because the employer is intentionally or unintentionally rendering him or herself invisible in order to not have responsibility for the social protection of the workers.
0: Now. Informal economy statistics rely on national survey data. What are the most common mistakes made when designing surveys to measure the informal employment? Françoise?
2: Yes, I mean, I guess the first thing to say is that countries have adopted a research, a design, questionnaire design for their house, household surveys, particularly before surveys that are very much based on a model of the labor market that assumes that formal employment is the norm. And so they tend to have fairly extensive detailed questionnaires for formal workers and fewer questions that would be relevant to workers that are working informally. So, you know, I would say the the, the first common mistake is to miss some categories of informal workers by not having a question that is concrete enough about their work that the person in the household who answers the survey can actually say, yeah, this person is working that way. That's a fairly common one. The other thing that happens is, particularly as it relates to social protection coverage of the very basic kind, the question that may be asked, may be asked about an insurance scheme that has very little bearing or very few benefits for informal workers, even if they are connected to it. And so really the question is, is this the right social insurance scheme to be able to help us identify whether a worker has access to a meaningful, has a meaningful access to social protection or not? Or is it just, a registration that has that brings very little to the worker. It has very little meaning. And so it's all in the details of the designs of the questions that the mistakes occur. I, I would say the other one is that a lot of questions that we at Wigo think would be very good diagnostic questions and are not always asked of all categories of workers. They might be asked of wage workers. They might be asked of employers. They may not be asked of people who are working as own account workers, meaning that they are Working for themselves by themselves usually, and but are treated by their government as as self-employed, just like employers are. So it's all in the in the sort of the details of the questionnaire, both in terms of identifying workers as workers, then uh, who are who are working very casually or informally, as well as uh, as identifying properly, do they or do they not have meaningful access to social protection? And the risk there in that question, if it's not as well, is that some of these workers will be classified as formal if they say, well, I, I, you know, I, I registered with this insurance scheme. This is just a, a reminder to all, us, us all and everyone that what, really what matters is de facto access to social protection through work, not just having theoretical eligibility.
0: Francie, anything to add there?
1: If I can just add the... Excellent work that's being done by the Federal University of Bahia in Brazil in the domain of occupational health surveys, where they're trying to respond to the fact that household surveys and labor force surveys do not differentiate. When reporting on injuries, they don't say whether it is a work-related injury and where it took place. So you actually don't know if someone fell off a ladder while they were painting their own home, which is serious enough, or whether they fell off a ladder on a small contract painting in the neighborhood. It's, it's quite a startling... When you start incorporating the idea Of the extension of informal workers into different and other workplaces, you start seeing how the conceptual problem has arisen with the nature of work changing, of putting work and workplace in one place and home and home as workplace in another place entirely. And I I think that's a kind of conceptual thing that simply reflects the way the world has changed in the last 50 years or so. And that gets in the way of the understanding of vulnerability and risk amongst informal workers.
0: I would like to go a little bit more concrete now. In 2018, the ILO has published the third edition of its statistics report on informal economy. Françoise, could you tell us what was WIGO's role in the publication and and explain What was the main contribution of this edition in relation to the previous two editions?
2: Yes. Um, You know, the publication is called Women and Men in the Informal Economy. And I think what I want to say first is that WIGO had a lot to do with the first two editions of the publication. We actually, these were publications that were jointly released by the ILO and WIGO. And particularly for the 2002 edition, and then later the 2013 edition, we actually wrote some of the chapters and interacted a great deal with the ILO. So that was just sort of setting down just starting reporting cross-nationally with an ILO, WIGO Publications. So the 2018 report is a great leap forward in terms of measuring, getting aggregate cross-national measures of informal employment for women and men. And what it entails is that it produced harmonized global estimates. And what I mean by that is that it's global in the sense that the reporting and the tabulations are based on the survey Microdata files of about 100 countries. They shared their actual survey result files with the ILO analysts. And they are harmonized global estimates. And by harmonized, what I mean is that the same or equivalent dimensions were used to measure informal employment across countries. Countries have a little bit of leeway in how they measure informal employment and they may pick different aspects of regulation that are sort of uh, flags for workers being eligible for social protection or for an economic unit being registered or not. But What this particular undertaking did is that it actually used the same or similar dimensions across countries to be able to come as close as one can to having comparable measures across countries. And what that permits the ILO to do is to release worldwide estimates of the incidence of informal employment in total employment, as well as regional estimates, and uh, provide quite a bit of detail also at the country level. So this was a fairly hefty publication. And the part in which, the way in which uh, Uyghur collaborated on this one was both advising, and it was a drawn van Eck both advised and reviewed early drafts of this report, and finally, what the other thing that we did with them jointly is that we co-released a statistical brief that provides highlights of the findings of this very substantive, lengthy report. And in this way, made the results more accessible to a wider audience beyond the statistics community.
0: That's, that's a really impressive achievement to have a global estimate of the informal labor force. Francie, Do you want to jump in?
1: I just do want to add one sentence. In the field of social protection, that series of reports has completely transformed the way that we are able to argue for the importance of the informal economy and get recognition. And legitimacy through and for the member-based organisations, because the data is so substantial, it is—it's not possible for respectable social scientists, including economists, anymore to say, "Well, the informal economy is merely residual, and people go there by choice." You can show the, the size of it with great force, and that oh. makes a difference to the ability of researchers, advocates, and the worker organizations themselves to argue for their place in the world as proper workers.
0: Now, talking about the force of numbers, could you mention some of the main results of the report, Francoise?
1: Yes,
2: I'd be glad to do that. I mean, basically, just a, a very brief highlights of findings is that globally, 61% of workers, both men and women, are informally employed. That's across over 100 countries. But there is a difference across types of economies. So in developing countries, 90% of employment is informal. And in emerging economies, so middle-income countries, about 67%. Uh, of total employment is informal. And then there's a wide range across countries and narrower definitions of continents. So for example, 86% of employment in Africa is informal, and that compares to 30% in the emerging countries of Eastern Europe and Central Asia. The other thing that's important to know is that across the world as a whole, where 61% of employment is informal, men are slightly more likely than women to be informal 63% of men but in developing countries women are much more likely than men to be informal in developing countries 92% of women's employment is informal so it's a dominating form of employment for women in developing countries and that has a great deal of relevance for the kind of work that WIGO does and for the member-based organizations They need to be the subject of policy, attention.
0: That is indeed very striking. 61% of the total workforce. Um, Now, to wrap up, uh, moving forward, what are the measures that statistical analysis should be able to provide in order to better understand if, how, and to what degree informal workers are having access to social protection? Francie, would you like to start?
1: I would like to approach it, I think, in terms of three different aspects of social protection. Occupational health and safety, what happens to older people who are informal workers as they move into their older years, and child care, because there are different issues for each of these domains. In occupational health and safety, the discipline is restricted only to formal places of work so it has excellent and very very advanced research on workplace-based health and safety but it is blind as to informal workers on the whole so we can't gear responses to the health and safety of informal workers using existing data and I think there's a lot of work to be done to plug some of those gaps, sometimes using the templates developed by, for instance, the formal discipline of occupational health and safety, but they have to extend their definition of what workplace is. Mm. Secondly, we are increasingly realizing how little is known. And how little can be garnered from existing data, existing big surveys, about the entry and exit from older people into and out of the labor market? Labor force surveys sometimes actually stop asking questions about when people reach, to to respondents who reach the age of retirement, say 65 or 60. It's absolutely blind to whether people were formal workers or are presently informal workers. How are their decisions based about whether to be able to continue at work? I think that's a real gap. And in the field of childcare, which is another pillar of Wigo's work on social protection, we know too little yet about the economic costs borne by women in their responsibilities for child and elderly care. I think there's room there for more attention to be given to more precise questions. We all know that every single question in any large survey (laughs) incurs really substantial extra costs for the survey itself. But if we are to use concepts such as women's economic empowerment, we really need to fill the gap about the economic costs borne by women who are working informally for their care of children and for elderly people.
0: Uh, Françoise?
1: Uh- Having a consistent
2: variable to measure place of work that is specific enough for for people to understand is important. And, for example, I mean, I think we've already talked about accidents and whether they occur at home or somewhere else. But just the the question of home as place of work is important to get right because there's a difference between being a subcontracted garment or embroidery worker working at home and being home-based as compared to a professional who is taking work at home and working on their computer, telework. And so that that would be one I would, just to be able to measure informal employment at all is, is an important one. And there's a great deal of progress in international statistics in this regard. The other one is I would come back to the questions about the nature of social protection that's being asked about. So when, when you ask this question, and it, it, it has to do with a worker who, who actually is payrolled by somebody, is informal, but but it's the question To be able to figure out if the worker is informal or formal, you need to really understand what is the social protection that, that they might be getting through work and is there any employer contribution towards that social protection? Because that would be key to really uh, being able to measure de facto social protection they actually have it, and then having more details. A question about the, the the particular insurance scheme for for wage workers, and uh, having a question about the a meaningful uh, registration as an economic unit to really know whether the question as a as bearing on whether the worker is ready, regi- the the unit is registered, and what that might entitle that, that worker to in terms of access to social protection, if it's an employer, what it might entitle the workers that, that work for this employer, and what it might entitle them to in terms of social protection. And then finally, there is still a question about a significant group of workers that are currently being treated as self-employed by their government, but are actually very much working under contract, under specifications, taking a given price by a contractor, mm-hmm. and really being able to have specific questions about what the work arrangements of these workers are and what, if any, social protection access they actually have through that kind of work arrangement would help assess their working conditions and what kind of
1: worker they are.
0: Françoise Carré and Francine Lund, thank you very much.
1: You're very welcome. You're very welcome, thank you.
0: And if you want to learn more about the topic of statistics and social protection, we will leave some links at the description of the episode, including links to the ILO Women and Men in the Informal Economy report and to the WIGO's statistical brief on global estimates of the informal employment. Please don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast, and stay updated with our latest publications on informal economy and social protection by following Wego on Twitter and Facebook. I am Sirius Afshar, and this was the Wego's informal economy podcast, Social Protection. See you next month.